0: Welcome back to Murder Under the Midnight Sun. This episode is brought to you by the book Starlight Over David by JC Young. This book is a supernatural thriller peppered with characters who have delusions of grandeur and mystical encounters. David and his companions embark on a misguided mission that inadvertently merges with the story of an ancient entity whose actions have wreaked havoc on humanity for millennia. Will David overcome all adversity and triumph in the face of evil? Or will he be crushed by the weight of history and a predetermined fate? This debut novel from JC Young has an intricate, multifaceted timeline that will keep the readers guessing until the last page. And you can click the link in the show notes to find that at Amazon. Thank you for joining me tonight. As usual, this episode is brought to you by my patrons. And if you would like to join the group of Patreon supporters, simply click the link in the show notes and you'll get a whole bunch of goodies, including stickers, as well as several bonus episodes. Now let's get back into the story. When we last left off with the story, it was summer 1996, mere weeks after Kent LaPink's body was discovered on a lonely road in Hope, Alaska and Michelle Hughes was being very evasive with the police. She would next agree to be interviewed again on July 31, 1996. In the interview, she admitted the horrible things that she had said about Kent's death to her sister, such as that he had deserved to die. She also admitted that her relationship with Carlin had crossed the line into romantic, but that it had been multiple months prior. She also admitted that she had discussed marriage with Carlin before she left to visit Hilkey in Lake Tahoe on a romantic adventure, but she said it was not a serious formal engagement, though there was an expensive ring involved. She basically talked circles, trying to be as vague as possible about all aspects of her relationships. She also mentioned another man named Brett Redek, who would later tell the investigators That he had thought he was Hughes' only boyfriend, while Hughes would describe him as a friend that gave her money. He admitted that he had given her several thousand dollars in cash and gifts over the several months that the two had known each other. Brett had actually believed that Michelle planned to move in with him in Barrow, Alaska. He said that at one point, she had borrowed his truck and then completely disappeared on him for several weeks. He later ended up hearing from John Carlin, who said that he was now in New Jersey and had possession of Brett's truck. And Brett just allowed him to sell it for him down there. And that was pretty much the end of his relationship with Michelle. He didn't really ever know about her ongoing relationships with any other men. A few months into the investigation, police were approached by a woman named Laura Aspioras, who described to them how Hughes had treated Kent like garbage, and it was obvious to everyone that saw them together that Hughes was just using Kent for money. Laura said that as far as she had been told, during the time she had known Hughes, her only real boyfriend had been Scott Hilkey. She told law enforcement the story of how she and Hughes had watched a steamy 90s movie called The Last Seduction about a woman who gets involved with the murder plot of her husband. She manipulates her lover into murdering her husband, and eventually her lover gets caught and sent to prison while the woman is never charged and remains free. After watching the movie together, Laura stated that Hughes told her she wanted to be just like the femme fatale in the movie. And as you may have guessed, the crux of the movie scenario was the life insurance policy, which was the main motivation for the murder. It was an interesting piece of information, but certainly not great evidence that Hughes had been involved in the murder. After the first few months of the investigation, law enforcement was having a hard time finding any concrete evidence. They had a lot of evidence, but it was all circumstantial, and the investigation began to slow down. About a year after Cantlapank's murder, Hughes was living back in Louisiana and attending school there. By chance, she met a young medical student named Colin Linehan, and the two were soon in a serious relationship. She met his family during the holidays in 1997 and they all loved her. They met a much more open and warm version of Michelle than Kent's family had not long prior. And unlike many of her past relationships, this one did not involve expensive gifts or trips in the beginning. Colin was actually from a low-income family and he had to scrape and struggle his way through medical school. In fact, Hughes would end up being the primary financial provider for the two of them while he was in school. She ended up putting her own college plans on hold and dropped out to work full time. The two ended up getting married May 31st, 1998, and in 1999 they had a baby girl. During these years, she occasionally kept in touch with some of her former flings, mostly by sending them wedding and birth announcements. But nearly every guy she had been involved with in Alaska had grown to realize over time how much she had manipulated them and most of them did not care to see her exciting family news. However, one of them would soon pop up out of the woodwork. One day, a few years into their marriage, John Carlin showed up to see Dr. Linehan. He said he'd been having medical issues And when he learned that Hughes had married a doctor, he had driven down from New Jersey just to see him. He had the thought that if Hughes had married him, then he must be a really good doctor. He wasn't exactly the smartest, smartest in the class. While Colin Linehan would later state that Michelle had told him everything about her life in Alaska when they got together, she had apparently omitted some aspects because before Carlin showed up in his office, He had never so much as heard his name mentioned. However, not much came out of the encounter, other than perhaps Colin learning about yet another of his wife's former flings. After spending his residency at a hospital in Maryland, Colin, who was also in the military, was sent to work at a military hospital in Olympia, Washington. It was perfect for the growing family because it was close to his mother, father, and extended family. And Hughes was finally able to go back to school and she would follow her BA up with a master's degree in public administration. Once they got settled into their new community, Hughes quickly became known as a big sweetheart and a super mom, ushering her daughter to various activities and serving on the PTA, as well as volunteering at a soup kitchen and a suicide hotline. Hmm. Possible murderer volunteering at a suicide hotline in Washington. Where have I heard that story before? It was as if she was trying to distance herself from her past life as much as physically and emotionally possible. She had become the perfect mother to an adorable daughter and the perfect wife to a well-to-do doctor living the upper middle-class dream life. A few years into their dream life in Washington, Colin was deployed to Iraq for over a year. Little did the family know that while they were undergoing a stressful period in their marriage caused by his deployment, back in Alaska, wheels were being put in motion that were going to affect their lives even more drastically. Captain Randy Crawford and investigator Jim Stogsdill were two of the main law enforcement officers that had decided to get together and create a cold case unit. It would consist of four investigators and would attack outstanding murder cases. One of their main cases I actually previously discussed, which was the murder of Sophie Sergi. And if you haven't listened to that episode, I highly recommend it. By the early 2000s, the two main original investigators in the murder of Kent LaPink, Ron Belden and Stephen DeHart, had already retired, but they had both long suspected that they knew who killed Kent but had never been able to fully prove it enough to bring it before the court. They had been utterly convinced that Carlin did the shooting on behalf of Hughes's orders. Now this new team of seasoned investigators would bring new eyes to this old case. The passage of time was definitely helpful in this investigation for a variety of reasons. For one thing, forensics had progressed further so that technicians could more thoroughly dissect what had been on the stolen laptop And with the passage of time, bonds that may once have been strong had weakened. The best part was that now John Carlin IV was an adult, and his father could no longer prevent him from being questioned. And the investigators were sure that he knew something important. They had also found it very suspicious that he had immediately gone out of state with Hughes not long after she had begun to be questioned about Kent's murder. And they believed that his father knew that John Carlin IV had some information that might seal his fate. One person who was much more interested in talking to law enforcement this time around was Scott Hilkey. By the time law enforcement reached out to him in 2005, he had come to see Michelle as the manipulative woman that she had been. When he had been dating her in the 90s originally, he had thought that he was her true boyfriend that she really cared for, and the other men were just schmucks that she manipulated. But over time, he had realized that he was just another schmuck that she used for money. He now had no kind words to say about her. Not that it had stopped him from sleeping with her over the years, despite having gotten married. He admitted that even though he'd been married for several years by then, as had Hughes, they had actually met up around 2004 to hook up somewhere in Washington. Over the course of the next few months, they had met up in various places to hook up, and this continued until Scott's wife found out, and Hughes had even once brought her young daughter along when she met up with Scott at a hotel. It was a testament to her character, or lack thereof, but Hilkey did not have any concrete knowledge about the murder, though he admitted that over the years, he had come to suspect that Hughes was involved. When they were able to track down John Carlin IV, They found out that he had actually gone to stay with Hughes in Washington, starting in 2003 for nearly a year while her husband was deployed. He had eventually left when the two had a falling out, but during the time that he stayed there, he recalled that Hughes had a few regular male visitors that he was fairly certain she was sleeping with. He recalled how close he and Hughes had once been when he was a teenager, and how odd it was that he was abruptly sent out of state with her to live elsewhere. Just a few months after Kent's murder. He also mentioned that at one point his father had told him that he and Hughes were going to be getting married, but of course nothing ever came of it. And in May 2005, almost exactly 10 years after Kent's murder, law enforcement attempted to question Hughes in Washington, but she was less than forthcoming and complained about them harassing her and basically gave them nothing. But by the end of 2005, a grand jury had convened to discuss whether or not to indict Hughes on murder charges. While Hughes and her family knew that the wheels of justice were in motion up in Alaska, they still tried to live their lives as normally as possible, though Hughes did hire a lawyer. And by the time the grand jury was out, they had decided to file charges against Carlin and Hughes for Kent's death. Hughes was actually tipped off by a journalist calling her, that an indictment was in motion, and through her lawyer, she made a statement that she would surrender peacefully when the time came. But despite that statement, while she was at work one day in October 2006, several policemen showed up at her house to arrest her, likely causing a big stir in the sleepy suburban community. Her husband alerted her to what was going on, and she left work and with her lawyer went to the police station to be arrested. The truth about her past was about to become public in a very big way. The details of her many relationships and engagements quickly became headline news all over the country, and she was branded with the decidedly non-politically correct nickname of the killer stripper. Along with photos and stories from her time in Alaska, Kent's letter from Beyond the Grave was reprinted in newspapers throughout the country. Tabloid dirt. Tabloid journalists had a field day with the story and everyone that knew Hughes in her current life were beyond shocked. But her husband continued to stand by her throughout. He refused to believe that she had ever been the manipulative temptress described in media coverage of her. Kent's family, on the other hand, was just overwhelmed at the news of the arrest. and They were overjoyed that they might finally receive some justice for their lost son. On October 13th, Hughes finally appeared in court in Alaska for the first time, and she pled not guilty in front of a packed courthouse. The prosecutor who would be trying her case was Pat Gullifson, an Alaska institution who had worked in Alaska law since the late 70s. Hughes sat in jail for a few days until her, her bail was lowered from 500000 down to 100000 so she could bail out. She was allowed to return to her house in Washington, but was under house arrest. Meanwhile, John Carlin had also been arrested and extradited to Alaska. He was unable to make bail and would sit in jail until his trial. He and his lawyers were optimistic that he would be found not guilty, and he continued to tell anyone that would listen that this was the case. They also demanded that he receive receive the speedy trial that he had a right to. They were that optimistic based on lack of concrete physical evidence. Carlin would get the speedy trial that he desired and it commenced March 12, 2007 in Anchorage. It was a huge story, attracting media from all over the US including both Dateline and 48 hours. While this was basically the opening act before the really big trial, journalists could not get enough of the story and the whole thing was splashed across newspapers and tabloids everywhere for months. The goal of Carlin's defense team was to present reasonable doubt that he personally had murdered Kent and to introduce Hughes as the most likely person to have actually carried out the crime and to show that there was no concrete evidence that Carlin had either been involved in the crime or had even known about it. Many witnesses had been gathered from all over the US, but probably the one most people had been waiting for was John Carlin's son. And he revealed to the packed courtroom that he now recalled his father actually purchasing a gun not long after they had moved to Alaska through an ad in the newspaper. He couldn't recall exact details about the gun itself, but he did recall that it it had been kept in a gun case in the house and his father had a holster for it. It was extremely important testimony because previously Carlin had adamantly denied ever purchasing a gun in Alaska or even bringing one there from out of state. He also recalled that around Christmas 1995, several months before the murder, his dad had told him that he and Hughes were now engaged. But, the most interesting bit of testimony, which was information that had previously not been known to anybody, was that not long after the murder, he had a strong recollection of seeing Hughes and his dad washing a gun in the bathroom sink. They appeared to be cleaning it with bleach. He wasn't sure what exactly type of gun it was, only that it was a pistol, and that was the last time he ever saw it. He also told the courtroom about how many years later, when Hughes was married and living in Washington, she had invited him to come stay with her, and while he was staying there with her husband stationed overseas, there was at least one regular male visitor who came in to see Hughes. He also recalled Scott Hilkey having visited at least once. He claimed that at one point, Hughes had told him that she was having an affair with the male visitor, which was a doctor who worked with her husband. This, of course, wasn't evidence of a crime, but could be evidence that perhaps she hadn't evolved as much as she liked to portray on the surface. When law enforcement had initially heard Carlin IV's statement about his father purchasing a gun through the classified ads, they had begun to painstakingly search through the archives looking for the right time frame and the right gun. They had actually found it. David Michael Stilton was a military man who had been stationed at Elmendorf Air Force Base in 1995. When he came to the stand, he testified that he remembered selling a Desert Eagle gun in January of 1995, along with the holster and other accessories. Furthermore, he identified the holster that had been found in Hughes' car as the one that he had sold with that gun. Despite that memory, he could not conclusively describe exactly what the man had looked like, nor did he ever specifically identify Carlin as the buyer. Scott Hilkey later took the stand, and he recalled that Hughes had actually learned how to shoot with the Desert Eagle that he believed had belonged to Carlin, and Hughes herself had actually briefly mentioned this in her very first interview back in 1995. Kilke also told the court how he had hooked up with Hughes throughout the years, including a couple of times in 2004 while her husband was deployed. One time they had even spent a weekend together and she had brought her young daughter along. Carlin's estranged wife, Julia, testified long distance from New Jersey via phone. She explained how when she and Carlin had originally gotten together, he had owned a very unique statue of Deer, and she had recently posted it for sale on eBay. The statue had originally been Kent's and even had his name engraved on it. And this was one of the things that Kent had accused Hughes of stealing along with his laptop in the days leading up to his murder. Sergeant Christopher Thompson testified in regards to the contents of the laptop, including documents and files that had previously been deleted, but were able to be extracted from the hard drive using more advanced computer forensic techniques that had not been around in 1995. The hundreds, if not thousands, of emails recovered revealed the true depths of Hughes' duplicity. There were numerous emails sent to Carlin, Scott, and Kent all around the same time, professing her love for them and planning some sort of future together. And in some emails between Hughes and Carlin, closer to Kent's murder, There were many insinuations of an upcoming plan that was going to make their lives easier, as well as discussion of countries that did not have extradition treaties with the U.S. The prosecution's goal was to not only make it obvious that Carlin had committed this murder, but also leave the door open to include Hughes as being a strong participant in the planning of the murder for when her trial came around. The defense argued that not only had Hughes been the sole participant of the murder, but that Carlin would not want to try to help her get that million-dollar life insurance policy because without her reliance on him and his money, she likely would not have stayed with him. They also admitted that while Carlin may have helped Hughes dispose of evidence after the fact, he had not been involved in the planning or execution of the murder which meant that he should not be charged as aiding and abetting. They also decided to just sort of throw out Scott Hilkey and John Carlin IV as other possible alternative suspects. They were basically just grasping at straws. The two-week-long trial wrapped up on a Friday, and after two days of deliberation on Tuesday, the jury announced they had a verdict, and Carlin was found guilty on all charges. He was sent back to prison to await his sentencing. Hughes' trial would start several months later on September 27, 2007. There weren't many huge differences between the two trials as far as witnesses went, but one big difference was that Hughes' sister Melissa, though she had testified at Carlin's trial, declined to testify again at Hughes' trial. Both Scott Hilke and Laura Aspiota talked about the movie The Last Seduction and Michelle's fascination with it. And the prosecution actually wanted to show the movie to the jurors, but the judge would not allow it. The prosecution for both trials agreed that Carlin had been the gunman, but of course in Hughes' trial, The prosecution was also trying to prove that she had been the main manipulator behind the scenes. But Hughes' main defensive argument was that while she may have been a shitty person in her 20s, it did not make her a killer. And they argued that all the evidence was circumstantial, and any witnesses that painted Hughes as a killer were just lying. And another strange argument that they threw out was that John Carlin had killed Kent for homophobic reasons because Kent had come on to them. It was this weird underlying thing throughout the whole case, alluding to Kent being possibly bisexual or gay, but it really had no bearing on the case as a whole. When the jury finally went out at the end of Michelle's trial, they spent only about 20 hours over the course of a few days deliberating before announcing a verdict. It was October 22, 2007, slightly over a year since she had been arrested. And when the verdict was announced, she was found guilty of first-degree murder. She was allowed to say goodbye to her family before being taken into custody to await sentencing. Carlin's sentencing was in January, 2008, and he was given the maximum penalty of 99 years. Though, as it would turn out, he would end up serving quite a lot less. Hughes' sentencing was in March 2008 and lasted two days, and included Hughes herself speaking to the judge begging for leniency, but he stated that he believed she was just as guilty as Carlin and therefore sentenced her to 99 years as well. But not long after her sentencing, Hughes hired new lawyers to immediately launch an appeal. Meanwhile, not that long into his sentence, Carlin was actually found dead in October 2008 while behind bars at the Spring Creek Correctional Facility in Seward, Alaska. It was determined that he had actually been beaten to death, but his murder officially remains unsolved to this day. Then there's the big twist. Almost exactly two years after she went to prison, in February 2010, Hughes' appeal made it to the courts. Her appellate lawyers had argued that the judge should not have allowed testimony about the last seduction or Kent's letter to his parents to be discussed in open court. Surprisingly, the court agreed with the appeal and her sentence was overturned. Initially, it was stated that Alaska would be putting her on trial again, but in 2012, it was announced conclusively that there would be no second trial and the murder indictment was dismissed entirely and she was free to go, much like the heroine in her favorite movie. So she got to go back to her super mom life in Washington and meanwhile, Kent's family likely still searches for answers and hopes for justice. But I'm interested in what you guys think. Do you think that an innocent woman ended up spending a couple of years in prison for a crime she didn't commit? Or do you think that the actual manipulator behind the whole murder scheme is walking free today? I would love to hear from you on this. I know how I feel and you may have guessed, but you know, I will happily argue about it with you if you like. (laughs) Well, that's the story of Michelle Hughes Linehan. And we will see you next week or sometime in the next few weeks with something new. Good night.